Um, anyway, right, focus, focus. Revelation chapter 3, um, talking on the church in Laodicea, probably the most famous of the churches um, Jesus shares through this prophetic picture, um, or through prophetically through John, um, this um, convicting message to the church in Laodicea. So I'd love us just to read that together. It's going to come up on the screen. I wonder if maybe we can do something we don't always do, but stand together and just read together the words on the screen. So this is Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Let's read it together. To the angel of the church in Laodicea. Let me, let me pray. Father, we thank you that as we gather here as a community, you are the one that gathers with us, that draws close, that speaks, that guides, that challenges and encourages. And as we read these challenging, these convicting words, I pray that you will speak to our spirits. Amen. Now that word, amen, Jesus introduces himself in verse 14 as the amen. And when we say it as part of a prayer, just like I did there, it's a bit of a stamp of affirmation, isn't it? I kind of grew up um, with this idea that it means I, I agree, that we agree, or let it be so, that we join together and let it be so. In the Hebrew word, is in the Hebrew, so this word is a stamp of validation, that it's trustworthy, that it's true, that it's faithful. And Jesus addresses this church here and says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Why? Why does he do that? 
Well, we introduce ourselves, don't we, in the way that we want people to relate to us. So maybe when I'm going into my child's school, I'd introduce myself. Hi, yeah, I'm Andy. I'm Barney's dad. Because I want the teacher, the, the, the receptionist, whoever I'm seeing at school, to relate to me in that way. Maybe if I'm at a wedding as a guest of my wife with all her friends and I'm feeling a little bit awkward in the corner because she knows everyone and I don't really know anyone, I will maybe introduce myself as, hi, oh, yeah, I'm Andy, I'm, I'm Becky's husband. I'm Becky's husband. When I go to the doctor to get my, um, my toenail checked out, it's not my toe, it's my finger. When I go to a doctor I, and I, I don't expect the doctor to introduce us, hi, yeah, I'm Mrs. Smith and I've got five kids and a dog and... I expect to say, hi, yeah, I'm Dr. Smith. Because we have a patient-doctor relationship. In Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back as Darth Vader and Luke are fighting at the end. And Darth Vader invites Luke to join him on the dark side. And he tells him, no, I am your father. He wants Luke to sympathize, to unite with him as father and son in that special relationships so they can take over the galaxy together, you know, standards, father and son stuff. He wants uh, that relationship to be there. So Jesus, he speaks to this church in Laodicea. He's speaking to a church that finds itself in the middle of society with competing narratives, with different voices all around, speaking into what is true. And Jesus, in the middle of that, says, I am the one that holds reality. I am the one that holds truth. I am the one you can stake your life on. I am the one that's trustworthy. Come to me. Listen to me. And then he begins to go on and tell them what it is he wants to tell them. In verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And the word there is that word vomit. You are lukewarm, so I will vomit you out of my mouth. It feels like an overreaction, doesn't it? Why is he saying this? Why is Jesus reacting in such a way? Well, Laodicea is positioned between two different cities. And one of those cities, it has a hot spring. And the water there is useful and used for healing, for medicine, for all that kind of stuff. And then to the south of it is positioned another city where they have refreshing cold water and Laodicea kind of sits in the middle, doesn't have a natural water source of its own. So water from those two cities are pumped into Laodicea and by the time it gets there it's lukewarm and it's particularly unpleasant that it would make people gag, it would make people vomit. And Jesus is saying, well, I will spit you out of my mouth. It doesn't say in the passage, it's because you're, you're both cold and you're hot. He's saying you're neither hot nor cold. You're neither hot for the healing or cold for the refreshing. You're lukewarm. You're meant to be a church after my name, but instead your distinctiveness has been covered by compromise. You're meant to be a church that is bringing healing, 
through the hot water, refreshing through that cold water, but you're neither. And such a church is incompatible to the point that Jesus has to spit them out. He has to spit them out. It is a challenging message to the church, isn't it? It's one that makes us sit up and wake up. Say, well, I don't want to be that kind of person or that kind of church. Where Jesus would look at me and say, well, you're neither hot nor cold. You're kind of somewhere in the middle. And he goes on, doesn't he, in verse 17. He says, you say, I am rich and I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched. You are pitiful. You are poor. You are blind. You are naked. I know it's dark and wet and a little bit miserable outside. And I promise you, we are going to get to some stuff that hopefully will uplift us a bit. But we need to be true to what it's saying here. It's a condemning message. Laodicea is known for its wealth. It's got financial institutions and banks. It's known for its wealth. And they had a giant earthquake. And the Roman Empire said, well, do you need some resources to rebuild a city? And they said, no. Probably a bit of a quote of this. They said, no, we, we have everything we need. We don't need it. We're all good. Now, as a city, that looks quite good, doesn't it? The city doesn't need help from central government, but they're quite self-sustained. They've kind of got what they need. You're like, that's good stewardship. That's pretty good, isn't it? But it becomes really concerning when it's the words of a church spoken to the sustainer, the Lord, the provider of the church. That's where the trouble comes. But the spirit of the city has gotten into the church. And the church, we're meant to be the ones that are helping to set the temperature of our surroundings. We're supposed to be influencing our city. But what has happened is the temperature of the church has been formed by the city. But the church has become comfortable and satisfied and wealthy in its own rights. And do you not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? And she is fain for wealth. And yet her spiritual condition is one of poverty. And there's this warning to us as a church, right? We're comfortable at times in our own wealth, in our own self-sufficient nature, in our own legacy, in our own success, in our own hype. But we're spiritually poor. It's a challenge, right? We can sound so self-consumed by our own ego that we fail to realize that spiritually we are poor. And the challenge there is, don't you realize you are blind? Jesus starts to point on these different pain points for Laodicea. The wealth and then the blind. Laodicea is famous for medicine. People would flood to the hospitals within the city. And they would receive sort of a salve for their eyes that they'd put on their eyes. And it would give them better vision. And, and it was known throughout the region for that. So don't you realize you're blind spiritually? Don't you realize you're naked? Laodicea was known for its famous black wool and people would come for miles around for the fabric in Laodicea and these things aren't bad in and of themselves but they can draw us into a comfort and a security and a success and a status in the world's eyes and we live in a society don't we where health and wealth are so central and so important. 
when we look on social media, we see over and over again on our timelines. Maybe it's just mine. But over and over again on our timelines, the healthy and the wealthy, those that appear in the world's eyes to have success, to have got themselves together. Maybe it's fashion and good looks. Maybe it's health, maybe it's wealth, but this idea that actually there's success that comes in working hard, in looking after yourself, in just protecting what you have. And it's so easy for us to get drawn into that. And as I said, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but when we put them as first and foremost in our life, when we make the goal of life to be successful in the eyes of the world, That's where we have a problem. That's where we get stuck. As a church and as followers of Jesus, we need to understand that outward success does not equate to inward success. The church here was spiritually poor. Although they had all the image of success around them. We need to recognize that our goal as a church And our goal as individuals that are following Jesus is not to attain success in the eyes of the world. But it's to live an unsuccessful life. A life laid down in obedience and surrender in following Jesus. It's to say, Jesus, you need to be center. You need to be first and foremost. You need to be the one that I follow. So how does it go on? Well, in verse 18, it says this. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So we see a bit of a solution, don't we? But I think the question, at least in my mind as I was reading this, was, Well, how do I buy these things from Jesus? How do I do that? What is the currency that Jesus accepts that I need to give to him so I can get these things? Well, the things that unlock the riches of heaven. It's not health and wealth. It's not success. It's not my own efforts. It's not my own human brilliance or our human brilliance that unlocks this stuff from God. It's surrender and it's human need that unlocks the riches and the goodness and the gold of heaven. It's when we are able to lay our lives down and say, I want to follow you with everything I have. I want to chase after you with everything I have. And Jesus is calling us to himself in this moment feels a little bit like he's calling out the church. And he is, but he's not doing it to condemn the church, but to draw her close to himself. Why? Because if we see that earthly ministry of Jesus, where was the poor and the needy and the broken and the sinner and the lost that Jesus sought after and welcomed to his table? It was the broken individual. It was the one that surrendered their life to him. It was the one that didn't have anything to offer themselves, that he went and sought out and found and loved and welcomed and forgave. 
And he's doing this to the church to say, let's wake up from thinking we've got all of this together ourselves. Let's recognize our poverty and our brokenness and the fact that we can't achieve this without God. Let's put him front and center again in our life and let's receive from him. And in naming these people, he isn't looking to shame them, but he's looking to cover. He is the one that satisfies every need that we have. And if we want to be the kind of church that God is calling us to be, then we need to find our all in Jesus alone. And just like Jesus then calls out their wealth and the medicines, the kind of their sick, the medicine, the ointment for their eyes and the garments that they wear, he then presents them with an opportunity to walk in these things. Verse 19 says, For those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest, repent. That word there is our usual word for repent. It's metanoia, is this turning 180 degrees. This is it's turning from our accomplishments, turning from our own self-fulfillment, turning from sin, turning from everything else that we've tried to build our life on so we can fully receive life in Jesus. He gives us that gold and those garments and that ointment as we turn and recognize that he's the only one that can satisfy that spiritual hunger within us. And as I kind of draw to a close, I really wanted us to, it's kind of my preamble before the conclusion, so we're not quite there yet, but almost there. Um, I wanted us to kind of focus on three more words. I know I feel like I've given you lots of different words from amen to vomit to everything in between, but kind of these three will begin with C, so a little bit of alliteration. I hope we can remember them. Maybe we can say them actually together. So these are consecration, communion, and commission. Can we say that? Consecration. <laughs> almost there, Andy. I feel like I almost did almost the slides without spelling a mistake. <laughs> almost. Oh, well. Consecration, communion, and commission. Well, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, right, where are we? Back to where we were. Um, so consecration. Let me focus on that first. So we should buy gold purified by fire. That's kind of what we're reading in this passage here. In the Old Testament, you see two areas where the priests would meet with God in the temple and in the tabernacle. And as they approached those places, there was instruments of worship that they used. To, to come close to God, and one of those was gold. It was an instrument of worship that was used in the holy place of a temple. But that gold, it had to be purified, and you would melt it with fire to draw out the impurities within the gold. And that's what's going on here. That idea of consecration is this idea of laying ourselves before God so he can make us holy. So he can transform us. So he can bring those impurities out. That they can rise to the top and be dealt with. It is this deep work within our souls, within our spirit. As he starts to draw out who we truly are. Starts to draw out those impurities. It is a deep process of being made holy. Of being set apart. 
for his use. And it's costly. It's costly. It's why the church in Laodicea isn't doing it. They've compromised because it's comfortable. Because consecration to God, allowing a deep inner work in our lives, is hard. It maybe feels a bit like a cold water plunge or maybe a boiling hot shower. My wife loves a boiling hot shower. I did for about a week love a cold water shower. And I've kind of ended up probably in like a lukewarm shower stage in my life right now. And and then we end up in that kind of lukewarm water because it's comfortable. And yet it isn't fit for the task. It isn't fit for the task. It's incompatible with that nature of Jesus. It's incompatible with what he wants us to do on this earth. And we're called to be a church that is consecrating our lives, that deep inner work of change and transformation, of surrender and repentance as we are transformed into the image of God. And we can't do that without communion with the Father. We can't do that without communion with the Father. That will sustain us in that work. Verse 20 says this, says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in, eat with that person and they with me. Jesus is saying, I don't want to be on the outside. Your consecration is only sustained by communion with Jesus. And he is asking for us to respond with our lives. It's a word of invitation that Jesus wants to walk with us. He wants to come in. He wants to sustain, to strengthen, to draw close to us. And he is inviting the church to choose life. He stands at the doors and knocks. And outside the door of our heart, Jesus is here waiting for us to respond. And what is our response to Jesus? Will we let him in? He's looking for this consecrated church. Church that's sustained by communion with him. And finally, Jesus is looking to commission the church. Consecration, communion, and commission. The final verse is in this passage, verse 21. And to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is seeking to give responsibility and authority to his church. He doesn't want her to be compromised. He doesn't want her to be ineffective, neither hot or cold. He wants her to be full of the Spirit's power. And if we accept that calling of deep repentance and consecration, if we sit with Jesus in the place of communion, then we are commissioned 
by King Jesus to go to our world. And there's this one commission of the people of God. And that is this, to worship him, to know him, and to be a people that outwork his life, his power, and his presence in the world. That is the call and the commission of following Jesus, to outwork his life in the world. And so I wanted to end and move into a moment of worship. Maybe the team could come up and kind of wanted to do a quick sort of summing up of maybe where, oh yes, there's Revelation 3. Let's make that, Revelation 1. It should be Revelation 3. I think that's two spelling mistakes at least. Please tell me if there's any more. Um, <laughs> I wanted to end, I suppose, by summing up kind of maybe some of what we've heard, what, we, what we've been doing over the last seven or so weeks. We had some gaps in there as well. What God has been saying to us as a family as we've looked through this series at the seven churches and the seven letters at the start of Revelation. And I believe actually it's summed up really well in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. And this is what it says. It says, from Jesus Christ, who is a faithful witness, who is the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us has freed us from our sins by his blood, who's made us to be a kingdom and priest, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And I believe what God has been speaking to us is really twofold and summed up in these verses. Each week as we've gathered, I believe God has been drawing us back to the cross and drawing us back to what it means to be priests. He's been drawing us back to the cross, that central event of human history, a central event of the life of faith. We need to be people that are formed by the cross, who are laying our sins, our rebellion at the cross. We need to be people who are experiencing the love of God at the cross, who are laying our own success, our own status, our own wealth and our own health at the cross to say, I don't want to be sustained in my own strength. I want to put you and your cross first. And Jesus, despite our ignorance and our arrogance, pays for highest price by laying down his life on the cross. And we so often think we just don't need Jesus. Like these churches here in Revelation 4. We don't need it. We don't need Jesus. But all other things that we think will satisfy just won't. Only Jesus will. Secondly, I think as we've been looking over the last seven weeks, Jesus has been drawing us back to this idea of being priests. I believe God has been wanting to mobilize the church as priests, as people that represent him in our world. That's what priests do. They represent God in the world. People who bring his kingdom, his love, his ways, his attitude to the world. People that see the kingdom of God's 
make all things new. And yet we won't do it if we've been lulled to sleep, if we've been seduced by the world, if we've been compromised and adopted and engaged with the world. We're called to be a people that are set apart to bring transformation. And Jesus' heart, it burns with love for those who don't yet know him. And he wants to mobilize us, his church, for those outside the walls. So as we worship, I really want us to be saying, how will we respond to that calling of consecration to Jesus, communion with Jesus and commission of Jesus? How will we respond to that challenge of being neither hot or cold? Repent and follow me. We're going to worship, and I'd love to pray. We're going to kind of jump into a worship set here. So we've got no rush. We can just stay and pray and worship. But I'd really love to, I'd love to pray for people, and I know others in the room sure will do that as well. If you're feeling maybe you need a moment to consecrate your life, to set your life apart, to ask God to begin to do that inner work in you again. And I'd really love to pray for you for that. That refining by fire moment for you. If you feel like, well, maybe I I kind of feel like I do that, but but I kind of want that communion with God because I feel pretty drained and tired. And I'm not sure I could sustain this much longer. Or maybe as you're saying, actually, God, you just feel quite distant. You're really desperate for that communion with God and love to pray for you for that consecration communion. If you're saying, well, I want to walk in the power and authority that I have in Jesus, and I want to be a priest that represents God on this earth well, that loves my city and loves my neighbors and loves my friends, and I really want to pray a commissioning over you, that you'd experience that today. So maybe we can stand to our feet and I'd love to pray. And if you feel like you just want to actually come forward and you, you want someone in the team to pray for you, then feel free as we worship just to do that. But let me pray. God, we thank you for that challenging, convicting word that you gave the church in Laodicea. And I thank you that you are a God that challenges us and calls us out, but you are not a God that condemns us. You're a God that draws us close and says, in our brokenness, you meet us. And so God, tonight we repent of our own arrogance, of our own self-success and self-sufficiency. pray tonight, God, that you would do that deeper work of consecration, refining by fire, that you would knock and we would open and you would draw close to us in communion. And Father, that you would commission us to sit on the throne with you, walking in authority, power and love, 
as representatives of your love in this world.